If you have a Bible, you can open to John 19. We'll look at verses 1 through 16 this morning. The text is also printed on the next page of the bulletin for you. There are some Bibles available on the table in the back if you need one. Um, I think everybody sort of instinctively knows we're living in a broken world. Uh, Things aren't the way that they're supposed to be, and we can't fix it. We can't fix the way things are broken. We can't fix everything that's wrong with the world. Um, In this broken world, uh, let's just think about the criminal justice system for a minute. Any criminal justice system will be hit, hit or miss. Any criminal justice system throughout the history of the world has been hit or miss at best, if not entirely miss. Um, None of them will perfectly dispense justice. None of them have the capacity to create a perfectly just society and to fix everything that's broken and restore everything. Every day you've got rulings made by corrupt judges who have taken bribes. Every day there are guilty people who never get arrested when they should be arrested or they're set free on technicalities. Every day there are penalties assigned that are disproportionate to the crimes. People are taken into custody or imprisoned, uh, and they're subject to, to violence and brutality every day. And there are all sorts of systemic injustices that are based on certain prejudices that we have against one another in the world. Even when criminal cases go relatively well, there have still been personal violations that have occurred that can be really difficult <clears throat> to overcome. And how often would we say, really, that restoration has been made or that justice has truly been done? even when a criminal court case goes relatively well. Some of the most tragic injustices are when people are falsely convicted. People are falsely accused and convicted of crimes they didn't commit. They deserved for the society to hear how they were not guilty. Everybody should know that they are not guilty of this crime, but instead, for whatever reason, they were found guilty and they were sentenced and they were incarcerated sometimes even executed for crimes that they did not commit. It's lamentable how many stories there are of lives being ruined in this way. It's something that we should pray against and work against ever happening again, that kind of injustice. It's also exactly how God saved us, that kind of injustice. God took the greatest injustice that was ever committed by sinners against another human being really against himself. He took the greatest injustice ever committed by sinners and he turned it into the very act by which sinners are justified in spite of themselves. So when Jesus was falsely convicted and sentenced to death on the cross, God took the real injustice of that moment and he made it to serve his justice and his righteousness and to restore the world to justice. Uh, so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. That's what happens in our passage. Let's, let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would help us send your Holy Spirit, um, help us to understand and to accept this word, this gospel word, this good news about who Jesus is, even in the midst of the worst things that could ever happen. We pray that you'd help us to see how these things happen for our good and for the good of the world, that you are able to do even that in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. 
And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, to the Jews, See, I'm bringing out to you, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned how John slows down now quite a bit more, I think, than the other uh, evangelists, the other writers of the gospels, um, to show and record in great detail the interactions between Jesus and Pilate. So this is our second sermon talking about Jesus and Pilate and their interactions. Here's the meeting of two very different leaders of two completely different kinds of kingdoms, two representatives of totally different ways of being human. Pilate, on the one hand, is in the stream of the first Adam, the old man, the old humanity, the self-centered human nature, the sinful human nature. That's Pilate. And Jesus, on the other hand, is the new Adam. He's the fountainhead of a new humanity. And his self-gift restores our life with God. He's a totally new way of being a human being. And when these two meet, there is conflict. And on the surface of it, Pilate wins, Jesus loses. Pilate appears to be the strong one. He's the one who has Jesus bound up. He's the one who's beating Jesus. He's the one who apparently has Jesus at his mercy. Pilate's the judge. He sits on the judgment seat. He's the one with power of life and death over Jesus, and Pilate keeps his place in the world, Jesus loses his. Jesus dies by Pilate's hands, but when you pay closer attention, you can't escape 
the truth that actually Pilate here, he's the one that's being judged. Pilate's humanity is being exposed as bankrupt, as destitute, as empty. And Jesus, even though he's bound and beaten and tortured and humiliated and crucified, Jesus is the lordly one. He's the innocent one. And his way of being a human, it has the victory. Even though he dies, his, his, the wrongful death that he dies. With the path that Pilate has chosen, with the, the version of humanity that he embodies, he cannot do good to Jesus. Even if he kind of wanted to, he can't. He cannot do good. He cannot stop sinning against Jesus. The Jews have maneuvered him, Pilate, between a rock and a hard place. They're playing on his pride. They're playing on his fears to get what they want out of Pilate. And he actually tries. says he tries with the resources that are available to him to both resist the Jews and stand against them and then also maintain his position. He, he tries to set Jesus free. Pilate has Jesus flogged. It's not because he thinks Jesus deserves to be flogged. It's not as a penalty that's proportionate to the crime that he thinks Jesus has committed. He's already made his pronouncement. We looked at it a couple weeks ago, the, the previous passage. He says, I find no guilt in him. I've made my judgment not guilty. I find him not guilty. He goes on to say it two more times in our passage, which John records Three times, in direct contrast to Peter's threefold denial of Jesus, Peter said, I don't know him. I'm not one of his men. I don't know him. And here Pilate says three times, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Peter denied Jesus absolutely. Pilate acquitted Jesus. Absolutely. He legally absolved him of any crimes. Now that's ironic. The bad guy is compelled to admit Jesus' innocence. Jesus is innocent. And the bad guy has no choice but to acknowledge that. And so Pilate had Jesus flogged, not because he was guilty, but actually as a strategy to set Jesus free, however warped that is. As a strategy to beat the Jews at the political game, Pilate had Jesus flogged. He thought, maybe, maybe if I beat Jesus and publicly humiliate him, set him up as powerless and weak for all to see. It'll satisfy the crowd. Maybe it'll garner their pity so that they, uh, they won't want him crucified anymore. Maybe it'll satisfy them. And we won't have to crucify this innocent man. And what's a little violence and police brutality on the way? What does it matter? Jesus suffers, so what? With all the power at his disposal... That is, the resources of his fallen humanity. It was actually impossible for Pilate to do good to Jesus. It was impossible for him to be other than a sinner who's sinning against Jesus. <clears throat> he was compelled to treat this innocent man who he acknowledged to be innocent. He was compelled to treat him as guilty. And the Jews clamored all the more for Pilate to crucify Jesus. When Pilate hears the accusation from the Jews that Jesus deserves to die according to their law which the Romans would respect. The Romans would respect Jewish laws, especially religious laws. They would want to respect that. So if one of their religious laws said, 
Uh, he needs to die because he's blasphemed, because he's made himself out to be the son of God. The Romans would respect that. Um, but Pilate becomes afraid, even more afraid. And it's, it's not so much because he's worried that actually there's the one true God in heaven, the Father, and this is his son, and Jesus is who he says he is. Not because he's worried about all that, but as a good Roman, Pilate believes in lots of gods and demigods. It's like they're human offspring, right? And he's probably afraid that maybe Jesus is one of those. Maybe he just flogged someone like Hercules. That would be bad news. So he asks him, where, where are you from? Jupiter's not your dad. Mars isn't your dad, right? That would be bad. But Jesus doesn't answer. And uh, as James read in our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So D.A. Carson has a a great commentary on John's gospel. He says this, What answer, long or brief, could Jesus have provided for the Roman prefect who's more interested in political maneuvering than in justice, who displays superstitious fear but no remorse? who still struts on the stage of human power, but is enslaved by the political threats of his frenzied opposition. In one sense, what could Jesus say? There's nothing to say, actually because Jesus isn't there to defend himself. He isn't there at that moment to give a defense for himself, and Pilate wouldn't understand him anyway. But Jesus wasn't there to defend himself, and his silence is actually a challenge to Pilate. It's actually a challenge, it's an indictment of Pilate. Pilate feels the sting of Jesus' silence, and he reacts, he tries to assert his authority over Jesus. You're not going to speak to me? Don't you know I could have you killed? I have authority over you, whether you live or die, whether you go free or you go to the cross, don't you know? So Pilate's demanding that Jesus would acknowledge his authority. But Jesus is the lordly one here. And what he says is remarkable. Jesus answered him, says in verse 11, You'd have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So it's a strange thing to say. It's a remarkable thing to say. Jesus isn't being antagonistic. He isn't entering into a shouting match about who really has the authority here. No, you don't have the authority. I have the authority. No, he's not saying that. He is seeing these events, these terrible events that are culminating here in his his false sentencing, his false trial, his mock trial, and the uh, injustice that's being committed right now. He's seeing these terrible events, the worst things that ever happened in the history of the world. He's seeing it in light of God's ultimate rule. Ultimately, God is sovereign, and he's resting in the knowledge that his Father is sovereign. His Father has all things under control, even this. He's proclaiming his confidence in the sovereignty of his Father. He's proclaiming it. He's not just holding it for himself. It's not just how he's getting through this. He's proclaiming it. His Father really is the one with authority. And these events are happening, and Pilate is where he is 
only because of God's plan. He is challenging Pilate's notion of autonomous self-made power. He's challenging that notion. He's saying that they wouldn't be standing there right now unless God has arranged for all these circumstances according to his will. And he is insisting that while God is sovereign over this event, at the same time, Pilate is responsible for his actions as a moral agent. He's responsible. He is actually sinning, even though God's had all of this planned out. And it's going, according to, to God's plan, Pilate is still responsible as a moral agent. He's guilty of sin against God. But he's also being, I mean, there's just a hint of gentleness here. There's a hint of grace here. He's being gentle, gentle with Pilate. Instead of ripping into Pilate for his evil injustice and just pointing out flaw after flaw after sin after sin and demonizing Pilate for his abuse of power, for all the injustice. Instead of demonizing Pilate, he's extending some measure of gracious care to him when he says, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. There's a sense in which Pilate is no more than a a pitiable pawn. He's been manipulated by others. The real villains were God's own people, actually. Not the Romans, not the oppressors. The real villains were God's own people and Jesus' own friend who betrayed him. So verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. That's what Pilate wanted. But the Jews wouldn't let that happen. They played their trump card. They blackmailed Pilate. They indicated, you know, Caesar, he's really the big scary one here. And he's not going to be happy with the idea that you let Jesus live when Jesus was claiming to be a king. Jesus claiming a rival authority to Rome. So uh, they point out the fact that if, if Pilate lets Jesus go, Caesar will not be happy, and that would not be pleasant. That would not be pleasant for Pilate. So again, D.A. Carson says, in order to execute Jesus, that's what they really wanted, God's own people. In order to execute Jesus, the Jewish authorities make themselves out to be more loyal subjects of Caesar than the hated Roman official Pilate is. We're actually the most loyal to Caesar here. They're appealing to that loyalty to get Pilate to do what they want. So what they're doing is they're walking in the shoes of Jonah. Jonah is that that one strange prophet uh, out of the minor prophets that it's really hard to make sense of, actually. Jonah, he's the religious man. He's ordained to to religious service, to God's service. He's called to a special role in declaring God's word. He's a prophet. He's a preacher. And it says he actually hated God because God was gracious. He knows who God is. He's gracious and forgiving. And I knew you were going to be gracious and forgiving. That's why I disobeyed you. That's why I tried to run away from you. That's why I didn't want to have nothing to do, do with you and your plans. He imagined himself, Jonah did, to be better than those pagans that he was sent to, uh, to proclaim God's word to. He imagined himself better than the pagans. He couldn't stand the thought of needing God's mercy like they did. And so he broke God's law and ran to get away from God's presence. And he became worse than the pagans that he condemned. He became more pagan than the pagans that he condemned. Jonah, the good religious man, one of God's people, 
ordained by God, called by God to his service, became worse than the pagans. The Jewish uh, religious leaders of Jerusalem became worse than the pagans that they condemned. They became worse than the Romans. God's own people. They were the bloodthirsty, violent mob. They were calling for the death of the innocent man. They've heard him proclaimed publicly, not guilty. They're, they're clamoring for his death. They're forcing Pilate by threats and by fear to do their dirty work. They're appealing to Caesar's authority. They're pledging allegiance to the pagan emperor. They're actually disavowing God and his Christ as king altogether. We have no king but Caesar. Well, they should have had God as king. They should have had their Messiah as king. But they switched allegiances. They pledged allegiance to Caesar. Now that's ironic. God's own people. Pilate's fear of Caesar outweighed everything else, outweighed any fear of God or the gods or demigods, outweighed any kind of compassion or human decency at all. He had no resources. He sought to release Jesus, couldn't do it. He had no resources to do good to Jesus. He had no resources to stop sinning against Jesus. He was stuck. Pilate couldn't very well sacrifice himself to save Jesus, could he? No, he couldn't. That would, that would defeat the ultimate purpose of self-preservation, which is what Pilate's about, which is what sinners are about. But Jesus, the innocent one, the lordly one, he could sacrifice himself to save sinners. God in the flesh, the one with all power and glory, taking the lowest possible road, the road of utter humiliation and pain, suffering and death, utterly giving his life away for the sake of the very ones who can't help themselves but attack him, can't help but take his life away from him. And he gives it. In spite of their desperate grab for power and glory, he gives them all power and glory through his self-sacrifice. Now, that's ironic. Irony. Irony is a common theme throughout the Gospels. Jesus is always coming and overturning our expectations. He's always doing what we didn't expect him to do in ways that ultimately are humorous. I mean, it's the most serious stuff ever here when he's standing before Pilate and this, this great injustice, but the irony of it, of it all, ultimately, biblically speaking, has God laughing. Jesus entered into our severely broken justice system, and just when it seemed like he was being ground up by it, he used it to accomplish his divine justice. Romans 3, Paul says that at the cross, God demonstrated his justice. The greatest injustice ever happened. Right there, God demonstrated his justice so that he might be just, and he might be the justifier of the unjust. That he would declare righteous and make righteous people who are not righteous, even in the act of their unrighteousness. I'm not sure exactly how that's possible, but somehow... When the innocent one gave himself up to the death of guilty ones, a death that he didn't deserve because he was innocent, 
But when that happened, God's justice was enacted against our guilt. It was imputed to Christ, and he suffered for it. And Christ's innocence, his righteousness, his justice, his goodness was imputed to us so that we benefit from it. Christ deserved to hear the words, not guilty. He deserved to hear those words and be treated accordingly. In fact, he did hear those words, not guilty, three times from Pilate. They were proclaimed publicly. Even his enemies were forced to admit it, not guilty. He's not guilty. And when he willingly went to the cross for us, he took the guilty verdict. He took the guilty verdict, and he bore the sentencing, and he bore the penalty for it, and then he gave us the privilege of hearing the divine verdict, not guilty. None of us deserve to hear that, that verdict, but he gave us that privilege, not guilty in God's sight. Because of Jesus, God has proclaimed you not guilty, period, once and for all. He's the one who arranged for this. God arranged for this. He even used our great injustice against him to accomplish our acquittal. That's crazy. Even in the act of sinning against Jesus, God accomplished the forgiveness of our sins. You know that martial art judo? Some of you are in martial arts. Some of you have heard of judo. Some of you might be familiar with what judo is or how it works. I'm barely familiar with it. All I know is that you're supposed to use your opponent's attack and momentum against him, right? So even smaller, weaker opponents can apparently defeat larger, stronger, faster opponents because when that guy comes at you, you use his power against him. <clears throat> God's the master of cosmic judo. <laughs> when we rushed at him to attack, he used our attack, our attack against us. He used our attack against us. He defeated our purposes. We wanted him dead, and we wanted to have nothing to do with him. We wanted to get away from him, but he wanted us alive and to be together with him forever. That's what he wanted. That's not what we wanted. He judo throws us into heaven in spite of ourselves. He uses our sin against Jesus to save us from our sin. He used our injustice to justify us and to begin that, that true restoration of true justice in all the earth. Even as we were jamming a crown of thorns, some of those thorns, like 12 inches long, just avoid it. It's 12 inches long. It's not like a little invisible thing that you're going to accidentally stick yourself with. These, these are huge, painful, sharp thorns. Even as we're jamming a crown of thorns on his head in painful humiliation, mocking him, setting up as, as the king and slapping him around in his purple robe, he was crowning us with steadfast love and mercy, and he was honoring us in the same moment. He used our evil that was done against him to do eternal good to us, infinite good to us. He used our enmity to win us to friendship. He used our slavery to sin. We couldn't help but sin against him. We couldn't help but put him up on the cross. He used our slavery to sin to set us free from our sin, to set us free for life with him. Again from Isaiah 53, with his wounds we are healed. 
We gave him those wounds, and he healed us with them, with the very wounds that we gave him. At the moment of our greatest injustice, injustice, our greatest sin against him, the innocent one, he became sin for us. This was the judo move. I don't know how it works. (laughs) He became sin for us so that we might become the justice of God, the righteousness of God in him. So he's an ironic God for sure. Not only is Jesus the true son of God, It was true. He wasn't blaspheming, like the Jews said. And he's the true king. He's not just a rival to Caesar. He dominates Caesar utterly in terms of his kingship. He's the true son. He's the true king. But by allowing us to kill him and to try to usurp his glory, he, in fact, shared his sonship and his kingship with us. We tried to take it away from him. And in the moment of doing so, he gave it to us. Tried to take life away from him, and that's the very moment when he gave us life. He gave us true life. He gave us divine life. He gave us everlasting life. He gave us his own life. We tried to rip his privilege away from him. We mocked his lordship. And that's when he conferred his inheritance upon us, and he shared his glory with us. Behold the man. Behold the man the new man with heavenly resources who cannot fail to do good to his enemies, even as they're killing him. Jesus didn't stand helpless before Pilate. He didn't stand helpless before his accusers, before his tormentors and detractors and murderers. It says in Isaiah 50, I gave my back to those who strike. I gave And I give my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Jesus is not helpless before your sin. Whatever your sin is, whoever you are. He is not helpless before your sin, as grievous as it might be against him. He hid himself not from you. He gave himself to you. And you've sinned against him. But he gave himself to you to free you from your sin, and only he could pull that off, and he did it in majestic style at the cross. So, Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, even as we crown him with thorns and pain and humiliation. He's that good. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how could it be that we would hear the verdict that was meant for your son, that not guilty verdict that he deserved to hear, that he did hear? He's the innocent one. He's the righteous one. And we are far from innocent. We're far from righteous. And yet you've, uh, you've declared that we are not guilty in him. You've made this happen in ways that we cannot comprehend. We don't understand it. You're, you're too great. Your ways are too high for us. Nevertheless, these things are true. The gospel proclaims it everywhere. You do not view us as guilty anymore. You've taken care of our sin, even our most grievous and dreadful sins against you. So we pray that you would help us to know, help us to bless you, help us to remember all the benefits of our salvation, help us to look to Jesus and be startled 
be surprised, be overwhelmed with awe, with fear and confusion maybe, but with delight in who you are and what you've done for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.